chapter 3. Let's open the book. Let's get in. We're talking. And by the way, on the back table, you know, I've I, um, been looking for a chart that has the kings of Israel, the kings of Judah, along with the prophets and when they ministered. And I finally found a really good chart online. I was able to cut it, copy it, and get it all on one page. And I was really excited because it had all the information. And, and I printed it out. And it's like micro, micro copy. <laughs> like uh, You're going to need a magnifying glass to read this. Uh, and now I know why it was all on one page. Um, I can hardly read it. But it's on the back table for you. And I would encourage you to take one because as we go through this series, I'll probably, maybe I'll blow it up somehow. But let's just go over Israel's history because we, we find two sisters that are mentioned tonight in the text of Jeremiah chapter 3. In fact, turn there. I'm not there. Jeremiah chapter 3 uh, is our text for tonight, verses 6 through 10. And Jeremiah and God is, mentions two sisters that played the harlot, that pr- played that were prostitutes. And, of course, those two sisters, it's, it's an al- analogy. Uh, they are, figuratively speaking, referring to the two nations of Israel and Judah. Which, if you look on this chart that, that I have, used to be just one nation, the nation of Israel, 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, first under the, the reign of King Saul, then King David, then King Solomon. And then after Solomon's reign, the kingdom divided. And that's when it broke into two nations. The, the, the ten tribes went to the northern, northern kingdom called Israel. They maintained that name, Israel. So anytime in Jeremiah, most of the time, when you see the word Israel, it's referring to the northern tribes. The two southern tribes made up Judah. Now, these are the two sisters. Now, Israel is no more. Israel was judged a long time before we come to this point in Jeremiah. And Israel was judged because they, they were that, that um, adulterous, or what's the word here, um, the backsliding Israel. Uh, literally, they departed from the Lord. They, uh, the, the word we use, apostasy, uh, that's what they did in their whoredom. Whoredom is a picture. Uh, the adultery, the whoredom, the prostitution is a picture of how God viewed their unfaithfulness when he entered into a covenant with them, and then they violated that covenant by going after the gods of the Canaanites, the false gods. As Charlie said today, I loved it uh, when he was talking about idolatry. Uh, you know, the, the, they're dumb. You know, the, the, uh, idols are nothing. They don't exist. Uh, you know, and, and here these people... Now, the, the Canaanites had all kinds of gods. They had uh, Moloch. They had Baal. They had Ashtaroth and others that I haven't mentioned yet. Uh, and they worshipped this plethora of gods, small g. Uh, and they were all part, what are called fertility right gods. Of mainly uh, everything back then had to deal with, deal with agriculture and rain. So they would pray to their gods when they needed rain, if the, the crops weren't doing well. And so, so this idolatry, in fact, before Israel went into the promised land, God warned them in Deuteronomy. You're going to go in this place, and I do not want you to embrace their false gods because you are in a covenant relationship with me. 
Jehovah, Yahweh, I am your God. I will take care of you. And he certainly did. 40, he led them through the wilderness. He, he demonstrated miraculous, powerfully uh, provided for them and gave them every reason to believe in him. And it, it's like he knew what was going to happen. Amazing. The all-knowing God. <laughs> yes. They went into the promised land. And sure enough, they became enticed. They saw all the, the Canaanite nations worshiping their false gods and, and refer to hills or mountains like the rocks and the wood or the stocks. It's, it's, you'll see this mentioned throughout Jeremiah. Uh, this was all part of the fertility rites. Uh, has to do with the, the rocks and the wood. has to do with the trees as well as the idols that they would carve from them, the stones. And so this, and to God, this was, this was infidelity. That's why he said, you're whoredoms. You played the harlot because you were in a covenant relationship with me. And so God took this very seriously. Now, long ago, the, the, there were two kingdoms. Again, Israel was the northern, Judah was the southern. And God, Israel was, was really bad at the time, had all wicked kings, and God sent these prophets to Israel to say, you better get right, you better repent, or I'm going to judge you. And I'm going to tell you how I'm going to judge you. I'm going to send Assyria to come and take you into captivity. And he'd sent all these prophets uh, to warn them, and they did not hear. And so, in uh, 586, I believe it was, Assyria came and... Uh, what's that? Say it again. No, okay. Anyway... No, it was when it was, it was Assyria first, because Babylon would be the one that would do that. Yeah, so 722, I'm sorry. I, I get the dates. You know how they, they're older now? Like, this is 2023, and I was born in the 1900s, you know. Um, well, back before, it goes the other way, and I always get that mixed up. So in 722 B.C., that's when Assyria came and, you know, basically destroyed Samaria, which was the capital, and took took Israel hostage, you know, took them captivity. And that was the judgment that God had warned them about and had used the illustrations very effectively and very clearly of, you know, being unfaithful, the infidelity, the adultery is one of the terms that's actually used here to refer to Israel. Now, up to this point, Jeremiah's just been focusing on Judah now because he comes along later and now he's given the same warnings to Judah and now God brings in, in chapter 3 now, in this text here, verse 6, he's going back to the early days of Josiah, and he, he's actually going back, and he's referring to what happened to Israel, the northern tribes. This is the sister, the, the apostate sister. Um, look at verse 6. The Lord said also unto me in the days of Josiah the king, Hast thou seen that which backsliding, that's the term, that's the term the King James translates, translates it. Uh, another word would be apostate. Uh, literally, he calls them, when he says backsliding Israel, it's apostate Israel. They have become apostasy personified. Uh, and the term backsliding is used, have committed adultery. And I had put, or I'm sorry, I jumped into verse 6. Hast thou seen that which backsliding Israel hath done? 
She has gone up upon every high mountain and under every green tree. That's a, a reference to the Canaanite fertility rites. Um, and there hath played the harlot. This is, he's been beating this drum for a, for a long time already. We're only in chapter 3. But this is exhibit A. I, I know I use this concept a lot, but this is exhibit A. Israel. And Judah was, you know, for a long time, they were sisters. The divided kingdom, you had the northern tribe, the southern tribe, and they coexisted. In fact, they interacted. A lot of the kings would interact between one another. Sometimes they even fought one another. Sometimes they had the same, you know, enemy. But this whole time, God is warning Israel, warning Israel, and they would not heed. So now God judges them, and he forewarned them. Well, now the same situation is happening with, with Judah. And God sends along uh, Jeremiah, and he's, he's now bringing exhibit A, Israel, the other sister. And he said, have you seen what backsliding Israel, and this is, he uses this phrase, backsliding Israel, backsliding Israel, literally apostate Israel. You see what she's done? She's gone up upon every high mountain and under every green tree, and there hath played the harlot. And I said, after she had done all these things, turn thou unto me. That's the theme of, that's what Jeremiah's been preaching to Judah. Turn, turn to me, repent. And, but she returned not. And her treacherous sister. So let's, let's talk about these two words then. We already mentioned apostate. We have uh, backsliding Israel, apostate Israel. And then we have treacherous Judah. Literally, the Hebrew word has the idea of faithless or fraudulent. And uh, this, this is used throughout our text tonight. It is backsliding Israel, treacherous Judah. And they're presented as two sisters. And the challenge now is to treacherous Judah that look what happened to Israel. title of the message tonight, by the way, even though we're halfway done probably, is, is uh, history repeats itself. You ever heard that? Uh, it's been said that the thing we learn from history is that we don't learn from history, right? And uh, history tends to repeat itself. Uh, because we are human, uh, we don't even learn from our past mistakes. Sometimes we don't even realize we're making the same mistakes. We get into these certain you know, ruts or whatever. We tend to do the same thing. Sometimes we just forget the lessons that God taught us. And it's exactly what's happening to Israel. Or to Judah, excuse me, the southern one. Um, so, now he's, he's calling them apostate Israel, and he's describing Judah as, uh, again, treacherous or faithless or false. And so let's go back now. Let's go back in Israel's history or Judah's history. First, we had one of the kings named Hezekiah. This was before Jeremiah came along. And God worked in Hezekiah. Uh, Israel at that time was, was deep in their pagan idolatry and worshiping false gods and set up all kinds of altars and images. And, and God worked through Hezekiah and brought a revival, we would say. They're referred to historically as Reformation under Hezekiah. But Hezekiah got serious with the Lord and destroyed uh, the high places, destroyed the altars, and, um, and, and at least and then up till his death, Israel kind of followed the Lord a little bit. And then after he uh, went off the scene, then another king came along 
and uh, Manasseh, just things went from bad to worse. And then Josiah came along. And Josiah, um, Josiah was the first king that when Jeremiah became a prophet to Judah. And Josiah made reforms. Just, and he needed to because things had gotten so bad. So Josiah makes these reforms, does some of the same things that Hezekiah does. But it seems like a lot of it was just surfacey. Yes, they broke down a lot of the false gods, the, the, you know, all the pagan altars and stuff. And, and that was pleasing to God. But, and he's going to mention later on that there's some reason to believe very clearly that it was a shallow revival, a shallow reformation. But here's, here's the problem, and this is what God is saying to Israel. Um, you saw that I judged Israel, saying to Judah. You saw what I did to Israel. And um, her, her treacherous sister Judah saw it. So this was the example. This was supposed to be, uh, like I said, Exhibit A, that should have the, the, the people of Judah should have seen it and said, whoa, we are doing exactly what Israel did, and look what happened to them. It was history to them. Israel was no more. They were in captivity because of their harlotry, because of their pagan idolatry. And now Judah is doing the same thing, but they did not see it. Paul says this in Romans. He says, what things were written aforetime? Now he's talking about the Old Testament, the whole thing. What things were written aforetime were written for our learning, New Testament believers, that we, through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. Now Judah, this was long before Judah came along, or you know, before all this happened, but this is what God does. He uses history. I love the definition of history. Uh, I remember the first time I heard it, I was newly saved. I was brought up in the public school system. I got the sanitized version of history, like American history. I had no idea that so many of our founding fathers were God-fearing men. And it didn't even dawn on me that all over Washington, D.C., there's scripture verses everywhere. You know, it's just, we didn't talk about that. You know, they were all just secular people uh, from what I heard. And then I, I heard someone say, history is his story, God's story. And I thought, oh, isn't that cute? You know, but I had always up to that point separated history from religious studies, you know, Um, what God's doing. But folks, the bottom line is, all of history is His story. Because God is dealing with nations and people, and He's been doing it throughout history. So when I got saved, all of a sudden I became aware of of, um, David Barton and other ministries where they, they did not give a sanitized version of American history, but they brought out the Founding Fathers' faith, and how many times they quoted Scripture, and and I, I did not realize that our Constitution was founded so much upon biblical principles. It amazed me. But it is his story. Now, you and I have to understand that. God is intimately involved in the affairs of all people. Not just Israel. Not just us as Christians. God is, is involved uh, in, what's the Old Testament say? Righteousness exalteth a nation. But sin 
is a reproach to any people. And I started to read. So, so I, I got saved at the age of 17. Started going to a Bible-believing church where I started learning truth a couple years after that. And then all of a sudden, I started reading primary sources about America's history and world history. And you know what I saw that I'd never seen? God is in it. He's everywhere. Not only did a lot of these, like in America with our founding fathers, they, they quoted scriptures and they believed the Lord. That was hard for me to get my mind around. Those of you that were brought up in public school, you probably can relate to that. You, if you got a sanitized version, uh, to me, history was memorizing a bunch of boring names, a bunch of boring dates that meant nothing to me. But all of a sudden I find that God is involved and it came alive. My first American history teacher was Tom Pollock. He loved history because, and he put God in it. And it, I, I, history took on a whole new realm to me. It's like, whoa. But you know what? We, we need to put God back in history because he's always been there. We need to put God in present involvement because he's still there. And that's something that Israel, or the Judah rather, did not do. They did not learn the lesson. They did not take the warning. Uh, Just Jeremiah's life was a warning. And so you and I uh, need to take the warning. I remember reading uh, about uh, years ago uh, off off a very dangerous seacoast. And and I went back and found the story, but there were no, it, it didn't give any references. But it's quite a story. It's been repeated a lot, so there might be some you know, alterations as those stories go. But it, it was a very dangerous seacoast uh, where shipwrecks often occurred. And there was one little uh, wooden shack of a life-saving station. Uh, apparently, a few people got together. They realized this is a dangerous place. We need to have something available for so many ships are, are getting lost and people are getting washed up. We need, we need to rescue. And so this very little ramshackled shack with, with a handful of people began a very arduous task of saving lives with the shipwreck. And pretty soon after they began to save a significant amount of people, many of those people that were saved said, you know what? Th- these people saved my life. This little shack here, this little mission is something I need to get involved in. So more people got involved. And pretty soon some people thought, you know what? We need, to make, we need to get serious about this. You know, our ramshackled shack, we need to start upgrading. And so they started to put some investment in it. They started to pass the word. And pretty soon other people got involved. The word spread. Uh, they were very successful in, in saving lives. And uh, they just kept improving it. One day there was a very large shipwreck. Uh, and... Um, and they, they got a lot of survivors. And by that time, it was no longer a ramshackled little place. It was, it was kind of a nice little clubhouse. And all of a sudden, during this one time, the, the, the half-drowned people came in, and they were all muddy. And, all, and, and some of the people in the, the rescue station said, we can't have these dirty, filthy people come in. We need to set up showers on the outside. And so they sh- so so after that you know when they come in and sleep on our nicely new beds that we replaced the cots with you know we want them to be well groomed and all so they did that anyway as time went on pretty soon um, 
they had a good thing going. They had a lot of people. They had little meetings. They had initiations. And, and pretty soon they began to de-emphasize the rescue part because they really liked the fellowship, the camaraderie. And it moved over time. It moved into simply a clubhouse. And one night there was a, there was a great split because some of the people said, you know what, we are... We are losing our mission here. We started, we're supposed to be saving people, and we've got this little clubhouse, so they had a vote. And they voted the people that were, that were, that were rocking the boat, they voted them out. And so those people said, you know what, we're going to start another true life-saving station, and they did. And as the story goes, uh, as the years went by, um, the new station experienced the same changes that had occurred in the old And it also evolved into a clubhouse. History tends to repeat itself. You know, there's a lot of churches like that. A lot of denominations that started as lighthouses. That started as, we got to reach the world with the gospel. And they got caught up. And and then they began to think, you know, we got a nice little cushiony place here. And pretty soon it became a clubhouse. And in fact, if you study... All the mainline religions, United Methodists, um, Luther, you look, you study them, a lot of them started out being gospel preaching, and now the mainline denominations are totally liberal. They don't believe the Bible. They don't preach the gospel. They are truly social clubs. How easy it is to get off course. Well, you know, if we can bring this back, way back to Judah's time, that's what happened to them. You know, they... They um, clearly, when they looked at what was going on to Israel, uh, the reforms of Josiah had just happened, and they convinced themselves that they were not Israel anymore. Because remember, they had the reforms of Josiah, they broke down all the altars and stuff, and at least on the surface, they weren't Israel. And God's point in our text today is no, you're worse than Israel. You are worse. In fact, let's go on. Um, Verse 8. And I saw when for all the causes whereby backsliding Israel committed adultery, I had put her away, given her a bill of divorcement. Now, this goes back to the first five verses of chapter 3, remember? It goes back to Deuteronomy 24, the bill of divorcement. And that God is using this picture to say, you you know, you've been unfaithful. And... Just as the unfaithful wife could get a bill of divorcement from her husband, I'm doing that to you. This is serious. How did he do it? He did it by Assyria coming in and bringing them into captivity, destroying Samaria, and, and, and now you know Israel was no more. He, gave, he, put, her, he put her away. They gave, gave her a bill of divorcement. Yet her treacherous sister, her faithless sister, Judah, feared not and went and played the harlot also. And it came to pass through the lightness of her whoredom. And whoredom literally is adultery. And this word lightness means she, did, she, took it, she didn't take it seriously. What God is calling whoredom, adultery, they're you know, violating him by, by worshiping false gods. And by the way, there is sexual immorality involved in the Canaan. I mentioned this before. But it's interesting how these go hand in hand. Because a lot of these 
uh, pagan rituals, the Canaanite uh, fertility rites, also had temple prostitution, and there was just all kinds of sexual immorality. So when God uses these terms interchangeably, uh, he wasn't just using the analogy that I'm the husband, Judah, you are the wife, and you've not been faithful to me. Uh, There was also great sexual immorality. And the idea of the lightness of her whoredoms, the lightness of her whoredoms, she didn't think it was that bad. So I imagine it's probably what happened was, here's, here's God's exhibit A, Israel, and you know God sent prophets, warned them, warned them, warned them. They didn't take heed. God judged them. And at that point, Israel or Judah thought so highly of themselves because the reforms of Josiah were you know, right in their rearview mirror and so it's very likely, and it seems to be that they looked at, at Israel as, oh, those, those bad people. They're disgusting. How could they do that? You know, they, they lifted themselves up in haughtiness, and they took their own sin very lightly. And they filled the land. She defiled the land. Remember, that was the big issue, Deuteronomy 24. You violate, you know, this is just like a marriage. I entered into a covenant with you, Judah. You, you, you broke that covenant. You were unfaithful. Uh, and that defiled the land. And he said, um, you, com- you committed adultery, the end of verse 9, committed adultery with stones and with stocks. And again, that's a re- uh, reference to their, um, their immoral practices. The stones and the stocks, the different forms of worship. And yet, for all this, her treacherous sister Judah hath not turned unto me with her whole heart, but feignedly saith the Lord God. It is interesting that Exhibit A was Israel. And God sends these preachers, these prophets, Jeremiah being the last one to say, it's going to happen to you if you don't take heed. You, you have a living example. By the way, you know when they say history repeats itself? There have been people that have done studies of past great civilizations. I forget, there's a couple books. I tried to find it real quickly. Um, but one of them traced the, the Roman civilization, Greek, the, the Assyrian, and, and they looked at there were certain common denominators on all the great civilizations on how they fell. And there were like five to ten similarities as far as when when you see these great cultures, the Roman culture, the Babylonian culture, that were at their heyday, that it looked like they would live forever. They had great armies and great power and great wealth. And then certain things uh, were common among all of them before they fell. And I wish I had some of the books, or at least uh, there's a list. And because many of these people that have studied ancient civilizations have made the correlation that America is now following suit. That a lot of the things that were the common denominators in these countries that God judged and are no more are happening in our country. And it is very sad. Warnings are all over. Some of you have heard of Mount St. Helens. And you may, uh, some of you may have lived through it. Some of you may remember 
that uh, in May of 1980, the final eruption of Mount St. Helens uh, just destroyed everything in its path. But it did not happen suddenly. Uh, They knew for at least two months the the signs, the warning signs were there. And so the authorities uh, gave great diligence to warn the people that lived around Mount St. Helens that there was going to be a tragedy and a lot of people left. A lot of lives were spared. Uh, but there were those uh, who refused to evacuate. And one of the men, probably the most famous one, was a man named Harry Randall Truman. Not Harry Truman, the president, but uh, a different Harry Truman. He was, 83 years, uh, he was an 83-year-old man, and he was the owner and care- caretaker at the Mount St. Helens Lodge at Spirit Lake. He had survived the sinking of his troop ship by a German submarine off the coast of Ireland during World War I. And uh, he was interviewed because, you know, people were fleeing. People took these warnings seriously. Something's going to happen to this mountain. We don't want to be here. But not Harry Truman. And, and he was interviewed by one news outlet. And he told reporters, and I quote, he said, I don't have any idea whether it will blow. But I don't believe it to the point that I'm going to pack up. And then on May 18, 1980, Truman and his lodge were buried beneath 150 feet of mud and debris from the volcanic eruption, and his body was never found. You know, it's, he, he, he had the warning, and he didn't take it seriously. And that's exactly what happened to Judah. They had the warning. They had their own example was there. They were the sister of Israel, you know, apostate, um, backsliding Israel. And here now you are, treacherous, faithless Judah did not take heed. And how tragic it is that they had, they had clearly seen this. Look at verse 9. And it came to pass through the lightness of her whoredom that she defiled the land, committed adultery, with stones and stocks. And yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah had not turned unto me with her whole heart, but faintedly. Let's look at that last phrase there. She did not turn to me with her whole heart. Uh, the, the term there uh, is, is, is literally, um, you know, that, that there, was, there was not sincerity there. And only in, um, when it says, Judah hath not turned unto me with her whole heart. That's the idea of being insincere. But feignedly, and that's a term we looked at on Mother's Day. Uh, remember Timothy's unfeigned faith? It was in his grandmother first and then his mother. Well, this is not unfeigned. This is feignedly, which has the idea of being uh, false, hypocritical, insincere. Uh, and that's, that's the idea. There, um, one commentator made this statement. He said, the next generation could reverse the Reformation, and it did. It happened after Hezekiah's Reformation, and it happened after Josiah's. Judah turning thus involved deception, the term that's used. Uh, Whereas falsehood, here's the distinction this theologian made. Falsehood suggests words that you say, but you don't live by. But deception, deception, which was the case of Judah, uh, suggests words that you say but never meant. And that was, that's, these are the terms that are used here. That Judah 
was really satisfied. This has been the theme of what we've been looking at. They're satisfied with their relationship with the Lord very much. Like one of the New Testament churches in Revelation. You remember? They said, we are rich and increase with goods and we don't have need of anything. And God said, and you, you don't know, that you are poor and blind and wretched and naked. Now that's, what did they say about themselves? We are rich and increase with goods and we have need of nothing. We're good. I'm good. I hear that all the time when I hand out tracks, uh, especially at 69th Street, the people that reject it. No, I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. And, um, you know, they, 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 we don't need God. We're good. And that's what Judah said. We're good. We don't need it. We're good. And they really did need it. And, and so the church in Laodicea, I believe it's God says, you say you're rich and increase with goods and have need of nothing. But thou knowest not that thou art poor and blind and wretched and naked. And that was Judah. Right there, that was Judah. Judah was waiting. Judah was ready to be judged. God was actually, and he's going to say this as we get on through Jeremiah. God had already picked who he was going to raise up to judge Judah. Just like he had told and knew this ahead of time with Assyria. He was going to judge Assyria, or judge Israel by Assyria. And what happened? That's what happened. So now, and he's even going to tell him, I've got King Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon that's going to come, and he's going to be, my, he's my servant. And Nebuchadnezzar was not a God-fearing guy. He didn't, he didn't have the time of day for Yahweh. He did not worship Yahweh at all. Why would Yahweh call him my servant? Because every king and every political leader is a pawn in God's hands. Remember that. Remember that with America. Sometimes we don't like the presidents that come up there. Sometimes we don't get the presidents we want. But God sometimes gives us the presidents as a punishment, you know. But realize this. Proverbs says the king's heart, and that's, that's authority. That applied to Nero, who was wicked and, and ended up martyring Paul and Peter. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. As the rivers of water, he, he move it whithersoever he wants. So with the king of Assyria, pagan king, no time for God, he did God's bidding because God used Assyria to punish Israel. King Nebuchadnezzar, wicked king, no time for God. God said on several occasions, he's my servant. Why? Because Nebuchadnezzar was going to be doing God's bidding. So you and I have to remember, and I, I want to close with this. This was a blessing to me. And, uh, and a statement that, that I read in, in one commentator, a theologian, said this. Because this, this text that we just read, and throughout Jeremiah, there is this anticipation. Just the fact that God sent Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, for 40 years to try to warn Judah to come back to him. Talk about long-suffering. And here's what the... Here's what this theologian said. Yahweh had hoped that Israel would turn back, but his hope was disappointed. It is characteristic divine experience. Yahweh had hopes for the world when he created it, and for Israel when he married her, and for the church when he brought it into being, but his hopes tend not to find fulfillment. 
Yet he doesn't give up as this message shows. And then he says this. While there is some sense in which Yahweh knows everything before it happens, and that is true, at some other level, he lives in narrative sequence with the world and with his people, and thus lives and thus lives with hope, anticipation, and anticipation, waiting to see how people will react and how things will turn out. Now there is a, a doctrine out there called open theism that some people would say, that's open theism. You know, the, in other words, they say God preordains everything. Everything's going to happen as it is. But I like the way this is worded because this is how it's played out in Scripture. Again, let me read that. While there is some sense in which Yahweh knows everything before it happens, at some other levels, he lives in narrative sequence with the world. So when you see hope, like the fact he sent Jeremiah. Now think about this. God knew that Jeremiah was going to have no converts. God knew that Jeremiah and Ezekiel too. In fact, he even told Ezekiel, he said, the people, they're not going to listen to you, but I want you to go and preach to them. Why would God do that? Why would God send Jeremiah to preach? Because God offers genuine hope. And it's legitimate. Listen to these verses. I love these verses. 2 Peter 3.9, remember this? The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. What's that say? God, the God of heaven, Yahweh, is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So God doesn't want anybody to perish? There's another verse, 1 Timothy 2.4. It says, God, speaking of God, who will have all men to be saved. In other words, he wants, is the idea of that, he wants all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Are all men going to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth? No, they're not. But does he really want it then? He does. Is the offer of salvation genuine? Absolutely. Jeremiah's ministry was 100% legitimate. His tears were genuine. The offer to turn was legitimate. Judah could have turned just like Israel could have turned. And they would have found forgiveness. Fast forward. In fact, Jesus, when he's on the scene, and I close with this. Jesus looked at Jerusalem and he lamented. Because Israel had officially rejected their Messiah. And you remember what Jesus said? He wept over Jerusalem and he said, How long would I have gathered you together as a hen gathers her chicks? Really? Yes, he meant that. He would have. He's talking back to Jeremiah's time. If Jeremiah, if they listened to Jeremiah's message and they repented, the Lord would have gathered them together as chicks. But he said, Jesus said, And ye would not. Now, where do you know the end of the story for Jeremiah? I imagine early on, he, you know, he, hope springs eternal. He was genuinely hoping these people would get right with God and not follow with what, it, what happened to Israel. But they didn't. So let, what's, the, what's there for us? Folks, you and I have a God that is long-suffering, that once he gives us space to repent. So let's repent. Let's get right with God. You know, hey, we got the opportunity. If you're not dead right now, that means you got the opportunity. I love that. He's so merciful. And I love this. We'll close right now. He's not the God of the second chance. He's the God of the 50th chance, the 100th chance, the 200th chance. 
He's a God of the chance of 40 years for Judah. Shame they didn't take it. Let's pray. Father, help us to learn the lesson that Israel didn't learn, that Judah didn't learn, and uh, Father, that sometimes God's people don't learn. Help us not to take advantage of your long-suffering. Lord, we are so grateful that you're a merciful God because we need mercy big time, and you offer it. So, Father, today we accept your mercy. Uh, We we take it seriously. We're not going to make light of the mercy that we need. Uh, Our sin, as, as the psalmist, our sin is ever before us. Lord, we need your mercy. The church needs your mercy in America. And so we pray that you'd have mercy on us. And uh, Father, that we would not be like like backslidden Israel or like treacherous Judah, that we would take advantage. Thank you, Lord, for your mercy. Thank you for your forgiveness. And we ask your blessing in Jesus' precious name. Amen. All right, let's take out our hymn books.